I'd ask you, if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Uh, this morning we're looking at Luke, or sorry, Luke, well, we're not looking at Luke, but Luke and Acts. Um, we'll have us die hard. Um, Acts, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit who filled the disciples who were gathered together on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit who empowered Peter to proclaim the gospel, the Holy Spirit who enabled the elect who had gathered to to repent and to believe the gospel. We believe in the Holy Spirit who is at work in the church to conform the church to the image of Christ to empower it, to equip us to do what we could never do. And Lord, as I think back, even on on my own life, I realize that I could not be standing here unless it was for the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. None of us could be. None of us would have a desire to hear these things and none of us would have a desire to respond to these things. The truth of the gospel and what you've called us to do as your church, we couldn't do any of it. Uh, apart from your work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts this morning. Cause us to bear fruit for the glory of your name. Cause your church to be built in our midst this morning for the glory and for the wonder of the name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. In Canada, churches are on the decline. And you don't need me to tell you that. You can, you can see it. You see that the rise of, of false teaching. You, you see that, that so many have embraced a, a different gospel. You can see that the decline of, of biblical orthodoxy, it's all around us. You can see that, that many churches are closing, that, that far more churches are, are closing than are opening, and, and many more since, since COVID and the, the restrictions that the government imposed on the church. And of those that remain, really precious few churches can be actually called healthy, according to biblical criteria. Many churches look more like social clubs than they do the Church of Jesus Christ. But we can testify to the fact that although the visible church is on the decline, the true church will never decline. That however things look in our midst, we can recognize the promise of Christ that he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever it looks on the outside, 
the true church will continue to advance and to grow through the work of the Holy Spirit for the advance of the kingdom, for the glory of God. And we can be thankful that there has been a move within true churches to go back to what the Bible says the church should be. One book that has been very influential in guiding my thinking as to what the church should look like is the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And Nine Marks of a Healthy Church was required reading in my pastoral theology class at the Toronto Baptist Seminary, and, and the professor invited Mark Dever to come and to, to speak to our class about, about this, this book and about church revitalization and, and about what a healthy church should look like. And in this book, Mark Dever identifies nine elements or nine marks that the Bible says are important parts of a healthy church. I'll just list them for you. Expositional preaching. Biblical theology. A biblical understanding of the gospel. A biblical understanding of conversion. A biblical understanding of evangelism. A biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, concern for discipleship, and biblical church leadership. Do you see any common words there? Biblical. These are things that, that it's not that what we feel according to man's opinion the church should be, but what God's word says the church should be. How God's word identifies a healthy church. Now a church is, is, seeks to conform itself to the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Mark Dever recognizes there are other important marks, but that these he lists here are, are particularly neglected in the visible church in our day. And the issue is that when we forget what draws us together in the local church and what God requires of us as a local church and also as part of the, the broader church, we are shooting ourselves in the foot or we're shooting ourselves somewhere worse. Some of the marks that are listed in nine marks of a healthy church are, are not just marks of a, of a healthy church, but of a true church, of a living church. For example, a church that does not have a biblical theology or a biblical understanding of the gospel cannot be identified as a true church. It is a dead church. However, the, the, the church that ignores the, the rest of the marks will continue to grow more and more unhealthy and it will eventually die itself. I highly recommend that, that you, uh, you read this book, Nine Marks of, of a Healthy Church. But what I want to focus on this morning is not nine marks of a healthy church, but nine marks of a living church. Nine marks that demonstrate whether a church is truly alive. Nine marks that demonstrate whether a church is truly a church. Again, there are others. There are others, but this morning we're going to, to focus on the nine marks of a living church that are identified in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We've been looking at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. The disciples were gathered together and a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind filled the house in which they were gathered. Divided tongues of fire appeared over the heads of all the 120 who were gathered in that house. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And at the sound, a, a huge crowd gathered outside, largely made up of, of diaspora Jews from, from the whole region who were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. 
They rushed to the scene to see what was going on. Miraculously, when they, when they arrived, they heard the disciples praising God in languages that they understood, in their own native languages. These were, were diaspora Jews. They were from, from the whole region, and they heard there were, there was 14 different language groups that were there, and they all heard these disciples who didn't speak those languages naturally, hearing them speak these languages so that they understood them. And they were amazed and they were perplexed at what was going on and, and asked, what does this mean? But some mocked and, and accused them of being drunk. And we saw that the Apostle Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up boldly to proclaim the answer to their question. He told them what this is about. He told them that this is the fulfillment of, the, of Joel's prophecy that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, not just men like prophets and priests and kings, but all kinds of people. Every single Christian would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this was the beginning, Peter says, of the last days, which he fulfilled on the day of the Lord. And, and he warned of, of cosmic signs that would take place before that day and, and that there was, would be judgment coming on that day and that he who calls out to the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21. And then Peter proclaimed to, or proceeded to proclaim the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the one to whom they must call. But he says that the that these Jews who were gathered had handed Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion, but that he had been raised from, from the dead in the fulfillment of Psalm 16. And that this Jesus is in fact the Lord and the Messiah in the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Many in the crowd, now themselves under the influence of the Holy Spirit, were convicted of their sin. They were cut to the heart, and they asked what they should do. And Peter told them to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And that day, 3,000 people were baptized and added to the church. They were born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. So then in Acts chapter 2, we've, we've seen what the Holy Spirit does in a preacher. He enables the preacher to boldly preach Christ. We've seen what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of the elect who hear about Christ. He enables them to repent and to turn to Christ. And now we'll see what the Holy Spirit does in the church. He brings the church to life. Acts 2, 42 to 47 is, is a summary passage, whereas, as Craig Keener explains, Luke is essentially saying, this is what happened in connection with these events. Acts 2, 42 to 47, it's because of what, of what has just taken place. There's other summer events that are similar, like the one in Acts 2, 32, or 4, 32 to 35, and 5, 12 to 16, but again from, from Craig Keener. These depict the regular life of the Christian community and emphasize that the church is continuing or persevering in the life depicted here. It's showing that the church is alive, by what the church is doing, by how the church is living. Now this passage in, in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47 is, is descriptive. It's, it's describing what took place. This is, is not presenting commands, so to speak. But I think you'll see that, that with each of these, these marks or these, these principles are clearly prescriptive as well. There's other places in the scriptures where, where these very things that the church are doing are, are commanded. And each one is something that the Holy Spirit does 
in a living church, but it's also something that, that God commands in the church. So then let's begin to consider the nine marks of a living church from Acts 2, 42 to 47. Now, now I know that, that most of my sermons have somewhere around three points, but, but this is a nine-point sermon. And so get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. Just kidding. I won't, I won't make you late for, late for Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to deal with the first four from verse 42 this morning, and then we're going to look at, at the rest next week, Lord willing. But let me just, uh, just identify the, these, these nine marks of a living church. Verse 42. Just follow along with me in your Bible. Verse 42. They were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. Also in verse 42, they were dedicated to fellowship. It's also in verses 44 and 46. Also in verse 42, they were dedicated to the breaking of bread. And they were dedicated to the prayers. And then verse 43, they're filled with awe. Verse 45, they were, they were performing acts of mercy. Verse 47, they were praising God. Also verse 47, they had favor with the people. And in verse 47, the church grew. So these, these are the, the nine marks of a, of a living church. Or at least the ones that are represented here in this passage. Again, just the first four this morning from verse 42. These nine marks, they describe a living church because these nine marks describe a spirit-filled church. Now, now you will hear all kinds of, of things that people say about, about being spirit-filled and, and what that means. And, and frankly, many wrong ideas of what it means to be spirit-filled and for the church to be spirit-filled. Here we have evidence of what God's word says it means for a church to be spirit-filled. A church that is spirit-filled is walking in the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, these, these are, there's eight, um, marks of a, of, a, of a holy spirit-filled Christian. And they are paralleled here and these nine marks of a living church. If these marks are absent, you can conclude that the Holy Spirit is not present and that the church is in fact dead. The Holy Spirit works these things out in the hearts and the lives of true Christians. These marks are evident when the Holy Spirit regenerates a heart. They're also evident when the Holy Spirit sanctifies a heart. We must be careful here. We must realize that, that none of us does these things perfectly. No church and no Christian is fully sanctified. No church has arrived. But the church is the God-ordained realm where we worship and serve God together and reflect and grow in Christ in Christ likeness together. It all takes place through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. So the first mark of a living church. One, dedicated to the apostles' teaching. Again, this is verse 42. It's the beginning, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what is the apostles' teaching? And what does it look like to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, there, there are clear passages of apostolic teaching, like in uh, Acts 3, 11 to 26, and, and Acts 4, 8 to 12. These are evangelistic messages that center on the gospel of Jesus Christ and his, his life and his death and his resurrection and the requirement of repentance and faith in him alone for salvation. 
These men, these, these apostles, were specifically chosen by Jesus Christ and sent out to proclaim Christ and Christ's teaching to Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts, Acts 1.8, that really forms the, the framework for the book of Acts. These men were gifted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill their mission. So, so there is no doubt that the apostolic teaching is in perfect harmony with the teaching of Jesus Christ that, that, we've, that we saw throughout our studies in Luke's gospel account. There's also no doubt that the apostolic teaching is in perfect harmony with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. You've got to remember that, that when, when Pentecost took place, the only scriptures were, were, the, were the Old Testament scriptures. The, the, very likely the first book of, of the New Testament wasn't written until, until around A.D. 45, and that was the, that was the book of James. So the, the only the scriptures they had to rely on were the Old Testament scriptures. And, and Jesus had, had taught them that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So, so when they're, they're teaching Christ, they're teaching Christ from the scriptures. Everything that they, they taught for, for about Christ and about his teaching was in line, in harmony with the Old Testament and obviously also with the New Testament, which would soon be written. We also have, have the record of the, the Didache, which was, which was written soon after, after Matthew's gospel account. And, and it's, it's a recording of the, of the oral teaching of the church. And we'll refer a little bit to that later on. And, but you see, it's, it gives you a picture. Derek Thomas says that the, that the Didache is, is regarded as perhaps the single most important document we have outside of the scriptures, identifying the practical characteristics of the, of the early church. And many of the things that, that are described here are, are in evidence in the Didache. So then, the apostles' teaching is biblical. It's the Bible. And the newborn church, as described in Acts 2, 42-47, must therefore be in line with the Bible. What they taught was in harmony with it, even though it was not yet written down. So then the apostles and the early church and, and every living church is sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura, as the Reformers would say, dedicated to and relying upon Scripture alone as our ultimate authority. John MacArthur helpfully explains that Sola Scriptura means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. But be careful, because Sola Scriptura is not Solo Scriptura. It isn't just, just me and my Bible. It, it isn't no creed but Christ. It, it isn't biblicism, which as R. Scott Clark defines as the attempt to understand Scripture by oneself and by itself, i.e. in isolation from the history of the church and in isolation from the community of the saints. It's not just, just me and my Bible sitting in a corner. Okay? Because then reason is actually, your, your own human reason is, is what you're relying upon. We have creeds and we have confessions which, while not in themselves authoritative, provide helpful guardrails to protect a biblical understanding of what the Bible says. You know, an example of this, I had a, had a conversation a, a couple of weeks ago with a, a Jehovah's Witness man who, who, who called to, um, to, to, to try to, to show me from, 
from John 17, 3, that, that, that Jesus Christ is not God. And it got a little heated. But I asked him, said, how many churches have you called today? And he was calling, he was, by the accent I could tell he was American, he had, he had called, he wouldn't answer, to answer the question, but obviously he called many, many churches to, to try and, and prove to churches that, that Jesus is not God. And he was using scripture to do it. You need to be very, very careful to, to interpret scripture in, in light of the scripture, as I explained to him, that the analogy of faith, the most important rule of hermeneutics is that you interpret scripture in light of scripture. But that, that you but you also didn't go into this with, with him, but you also have the, the guardrails of the creeds and confessions that, that help us to, to understand the Bible biblically. They're not authoritative, but they are our, our help, they're helps to us. So for example, we, we have um, the Apostles' Creed. Which, which was written in the early centuries of the church. But, but the Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the apostles. Nonetheless, it's, it helps us to recognize and to understand what the apostles' teaching or the biblical teaching was about God and Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a test, really, of orthodoxy. Likewise, the, the Nicene and, and Chalcedonian creeds help us to, to understand the biblical teaching uh, about, about the, the Trinity and about, about the... the about the incarnation of Christ. Similarly, confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession do the same thing with, with Scripture more broadly. Again, they're not authoritative, but they're guardrails that, that help us to be orthodox in our understanding of what the Scriptures teach. And Luke tells us in Acts 2, 42-47 that the, the early church was dedicated to biblical teaching. It was it was grounded in biblical teaching. It was focused on biblical teaching. It was directed by biblical teaching. And this is true for them because the Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts. As, as Jesus said in, in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and he will guide you into the truth of God's word. This is part of our, our progressive sanctification is, is growing in our knowledge of the truths of God's word through the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will reveal truth from God's word to God's people and will direct them to the truth. But a church that is not grounded and focused and directed by biblical teaching is not a living church. It is not a true church. You know, if you're ever visiting another city and, and you want to go and, and, and visit a church, first go to their website and, and check out their statement of faith. And you'll notice that most good churches will identify the doctrine of Scripture as the, the first point on their statement of faith. And that's because it all flows from the doctrine of Scripture. If you have a, a, a skewed doctrine of Scripture, then, then everything is going to be skewed. Right? Because the church is built on the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets. It's, it's, it's based on the Word of God. And if you don't have a, a solid foundation, the building is off and it's eventually going to topple. And so you should really look at the church's statement of faith. You know, if they're wishy-washy about inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, the rest of their doctrine is going to follow. You know, I've noticed that as I've, in the course of studying whatnot, that, that I've, I've noticed that more and more churches don't even include a statement of faith on the website. That's a, that's a huge red flag. But it's not enough just, just to have a, a, a statement of faith, not even a, a good statement of faith, the question comes, do they actually believe it? And you really 
won't begin to understand that until you until you, you dig a little bit further and, and listen to some of the sermons or, or maybe spend a little time in that church. So it's, it's you need to, to have a, a biblical statement of faith, especially about the Bible, but everything else that follows from that, and then to walk in the truths of that. That's what it means to, to be dedicated to biblical teaching. Again, Mark Dever's Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, each mark goes back to the Bible, but the, the first two, two marks, the, the mark of of, of expository preaching, actually the first three, the, the expository preaching, which is the teaching of God's word, again, it's, it's vitally important. And, and a church that is not doing that is, is going to be shaky. And, and I mean, it's, I'm thankful that, that we, we do sequential expositional preaching so the whole counsel of God's word gets taught. So we're not, not teaching my own, my own pet um, theological sermons and, and I'm not avoiding things that are uncomfortable for me to preach on. It's, it's God's word sets the agenda. But, but the, the fundamentals of, of biblical theology and a biblical understanding of the gospel are vitally important. Again, not just to, to a church being healthy, but a church being truly alive. If, if a church is, is really off on primary issues of doctrine, especially on the gospel, the church is, is a dead church. If they're teaching things like, like a social gospel, that the gospel is not about the gospel is not about the, the life and death of Jesus Christ, who, who was the, the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Social gospel. The teaching said it's, it's about it's about about helping people. Now we should help people. That's not the gospel. That's fruit of the gospel. Likewise, if, if a church mixes some form of, of any faith and works, it's a false gospel. It's a false church. It's not alive. If a church acknowledges or accepts that there is any other name than the name of Jesus Christ alone, whereby men and women are reconciled to the Father, it is not a true church. So we can recognize this. We see all kinds of churches in, in our city that are, are doing this. You know, the, the, the prosperity gospel is another false gospel that has gripped many of the churches in our city. It's not the gospel. It's a false gospel. Any, any church that is preaching the prosperity gospel is not a true church. But it's easy for us to point the finger out there. We need to ask ourselves, are we dedicated to biblical theology? Are we dedicated to biblical teaching? Are we dedicated to the apostles' teaching? Are we grounded in biblical theology? Are we focused on this teaching? Are we directed by this teaching? Again, it isn't enough just to affirm biblical teaching. That's easy. It's easy to affirm biblical teaching. There's many who, who affirm biblical teaching but aren't truly saved. The, the devil affirms biblical teaching. In order, to in order to have good theology, you just need to, to, to read the right books and listen to the right preachers. But the question is, do, do, are, we, are we dedicated to biblical teaching? Are we walking in the light that, that, we, that we say we believe? Because that really demonstrates whether you actually believe it or not. Now, as, as I examine my own life, and I trust as, as you examine yours, even at this moment, I, I trust that, that you are, are seeing errors in, in the way you walk, sins in the way you walk, that ways that, that you have what you believe, but then times that, that your own life does not accurately reflect what you believe. Well, so you're, you're in good company. 
Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 testified to the very things. He said that, that he delighted in the law of God after the inward man, but, but, but he, he recognized that, that sin arose within him and, and, and caused him to, to not act in the way that, that he knew that God's word said he should act. And his conclusion, at the end of, of Romans 7, we talked about this at the men's praying yesterday morning. Paul's conclusion, who then shall deliver me from this body of death? I praise God for Jesus Christ, he says. And then he goes into to Romans chapter 8, which is really the, the full uh, explanation of how Christ delivers him and us from the body of death. So again, it's, we're, we're not saved by, we're not saved by being dedicated to the apostles' teaching. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But the fruit of one who is saved is, is someone whose life is, is growing in conformity to Christ and is, is increasingly have the, the right doctrine we believe and our, our lives are increasingly lining up with that. And even our doctrine is also growing. Right again, so it's part of our, our, our sanctification, because of sanctification is, is growing in the knowledge of the truth. I shake my head at some of the things I used to believe. But I'm thankful for, for God revealing them to me by the truth by His Spirit. I'm thankful that he is, is working in me and in, in the hearts of many in his church to, to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what it means to be dedicated to the apostles' teaching. Again, we haven't arrived, but we are being progressively sanctified. And, and the question, again, we need to ask is, are we building our, our, our life in the church and our, our own life and our, our, and our families and, and as individuals on the Bible? When the Holy Spirit is, is at work in you, he will enable you to increasingly build your life, all of it, on the Bible and the Bible's teaching. The next mark flows from biblical teaching or the apostles' teaching to dedicated to fellowship. This is in uh, verse 42 and also 44 and 46. The apostles' teaching leads to the apostles' fellowship. One John one three. That which you have seen and heard, we sorry. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ. Dedication to biblical teaching will lead to dedication to fellowship. By the work of the Holy Spirit, you will be directed and drawn towards others who are dedicated to biblical teaching, and you will enjoy fellowship with them. Well, what is fellowship? Well, fellowship isn't just a chat over a cup of coffee and a piece of cake in the gym after the service. The word that is translated fellowship here in Acts 2.42 is the, the same word that, that's translated common down in verse 44. Craig Keener defines, defines this word, it's koinonia. Uh, Craig Keener defines this word as to share in common with. To share in common with. And in this context, it, it means to consciously share a common identity with Christ. To commonly share a common identity with Christ. It, it, he says it describes the harmony that is created by shared purpose and working together. So then koinonia, fellowship, is the common life that we share as believers in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.9 that we were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in Philippians 2.1, Paul says that if there's any 
encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, koinonia, the same love, koinonia, being of full accord and one mind. That's fellowship. That's fellowship. And it is only the blessing that is received by those who have fellowship together with Christ through repentance and faith in his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. The source of our fellowship is not having common experiences. It's not having common interests. It's not having common circumstances. The source of our fellowship is having a common share in Christ. And fellowship comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of true believers. And so the newborn church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, demonstrated and enjoyed that fellowship. And so remember we talked in the, in the, on the, day, with the day of Pentecost and, and speaking in these other languages, that is the beginning of the reversal of the confusion of, of the languages at the Tower of Babel. And it also led to the, the, the scattering of people at the Tower of Babel. Well, this fellowship is a further, is a further reversal of Babel as the true believers now enjoy common life in the Church of Christ. And enjoy common life in the Church in Christ. And we recognize that the place where a lot of this stuff is going to happen is, is in the local church, right? The, the group that, that you have covenanted with, the, the group that you have, have submitted to. This is where most of it's going to happen. But we recognize that it takes place in, in the wider church as well. I was talking earlier about, about the, the fire fellowship and, and the close fellowship that we have, we have with, with other like-minded churches in our region and and. and really internationally, around the world. And the reason, the main reason why, we, we, why we've, we've joined the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals is, is because of a common understanding of the Word of God. Because we have common beliefs about, about the Word of God and the implications of it. And so we, we, we all hold to the, the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. But some, some time ago, I was talking with another pastor within with our own fellowship here in Canada, the Fellowship of, of Evangelical Baptist Pacific. And he was bemoaning the fact that, that many of the churches within our fellowship, actually, in, and he's speaking of the interior churches, don't have really much in the way of close fellowship. And I explained to him that the reason for that is because we don't believe the same things. We actually... We, we do share a common statement of faith, but, but many of, of the churches in the, in the interior and, and, and fellowship um, Baptist churches in, in BC and Yukon really sadly have, have rejected the, their very statement of faith and are moving away from biblical doctrine. Now, thankfully, there's, there's a handful. And Rob Mary here is, is an example of, of, a, of another church, another fellowship church that, that, that holds to the, the same doctrinal standards that we hold to. Well, praise God that you're here with us. But we need to recognize that it's, it's in the Word of God, and fellowship 
you can't really have true Christian fellowship with those who have different ideas about what the Bible teaches, especially what the Bible teaches about Jesus and the gospel. And so we, we enjoy a, a wider fellowship. That we, I gather monthly with, with like-minded pastors from, from several different denominations in this city, as, and we come together to enjoy fellowship and to, and to pray together. Now, they, they have some, some different views on secondary issues and tertiary issues as well, but, but on the, the common core fundamentals of the faith, we agree and hold to them steadfastly, and we're able to, to come together and to pray together as brothers in Christ. So down in, in verse 44, Luke writes, and, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they're in common against this. the word is koinonia. Similarly, Acts 4.32, Luke writes, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now this was evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work in them because he had caused them to have a proper response to their possessions. They, they no longer viewed their possessions as, as things that, that belonged to themselves, but they belonged to God, and they were to be used for his glory and for the, the good of advance of the, of the kingdom of God and the church. The Holy Spirit also enabled them to have a, a, a proper response to others in the church. The Holy Spirit worked a heart of, of love in them so that, that, so that they would, would hold the, the others in the church as, as not just, just strangers or people have a, a loose association, but as really as brothers and sisters. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, filling filling the church with love. And so, so this is the, it's the, the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but, but this fellowship that they, they'd enjoyed um, also led to further fellowship. Right? They're, they're actually gathering together and, and, and not, not holding on to their possessions selfishly actually caused the, the, their fellowship to grow as they were really investing in each other. And the time that they're investing in each other caused their fellowship to grow. And so, again, it produced, it produced fellowship. But we need to recognize here, this, is, this was not an, an early form of, of communism. We'll, we'll talk more about this, Lord willing, next week when we get to Ministries of Mercy in verse 45. But the, the Christians still maintained that their own possessions, their own property. There's a, a reference in, in 437 of a, a field that belonged to Barnabas. The verb tense real, reveals that this is, this is not a one-off. We're just renouncing all of our possessions. But, but, but what was happening was that there was, this was a recurring event. So that as a need arose in the church, people would say, look, I don't, I don't need this. You need it more than I do. You can have it. It was, it was a different relationship, again, with, with their possessions and with other people. Luke continues again in verse 46. Again, we'll look at 45 next week. But verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now here, I don't think the ESV does the best job of translating the word together. Here, here I think the NASB does a better job, the New American Standard Version. It says day by day, continuing with, with one mind in the temple. They, they were single-minded with, with hearts tuned to the word of God by the Spirit of God. Again, their, their common view of the Word of God led to their fellowship. 
and notice that they met daily and notice it was in the temple. And we recognize that, that, that initially they met in the temple, but Jesus, remember, Jesus said that in AD 70 that the temple was going to be destroyed, but, but that even with, with, his, with his death on the cross, when the, the, the curtain of the temple was torn from, from top to bottom at, at his death, the, the temple was really made obsolete. Okay, the, the, the temple really had no more purpose in, in the, the, the life, in, in the, the cultic life of, of the church. Okay, because it, it, it fulfilled its purpose in pointing to Christ and what Christ was going to do. And it said in AD 70 it was destroyed. But, but they, they, they didn't, the early church didn't, didn't separate themselves from, from Jewish worship at this point. But eventually, very, very soon, they, they would begin to, to gather um, more in, in homes and other locations. But here we see them gathering in, in the temple, in the temple precincts. But what I want us to focus here on the fact is they met daily for corporate worship. They met daily. And as I think about this church, I think it's true for many of us that we meet, if not daily, very close to it. And I think about the, the, way, the way that the people gather to, together to, to worship God together. That's not just, a, just you know, Sunday and we're done, we're out of here. That, that, we, that we maintain a body life throughout the week. We see this in, in, the, the, um, in the, the care groups and we see this in the men's and women's studies and then the, the men's prayer group and and so we see this on a, on a very regular basis. But notice here in verse 46, again, the second half, and breaking bread in their homes. Right? They're breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. And, and so this is not just a, a formal gathering of the church, but, but informally as well. They were, they were gathering throughout the week together in each other's homes. And, and that happens, praise God, a lot in our midst as well. And this is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. No one's commanding you to do this. This is something that, well, I guess God in his word is, but, but saying we're not saying you have to meet this number of times. You guys are doing this because you want to, because you love each other. And now again, we have not arrived in this. We, we need to grow in, in these things, but, but it's, it's, I see this and I see this really increasing in the church, in this church. They gathered in homes and shared meals together. And so, so like their common possessions, these common meals were a part of their common life. And it came from the heart of love wrought by the Holy Spirit. They gladly served others in table fellowship because of the love for one another. And again, this table fellowship caused their fellowship then to grow. And when they, they got together, they, they, you can be rest assured that they didn't just chit-chat. They, they spoke together about the Lord and about their walk with the Lord out of, out of care for their brothers and sisters' spiritual condition. So I wonder, what, what is going to be the, the content of your conversation over coffee and cake after the service today? May the Holy Spirit fill you and me so that the content of our conversation really, really constitutes true biblical fellowship. Now with these last two, two more points, with these last two points, I'm, I'm going to be, be more brief um, when, I, when I speak here on the, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And if, you, if you'd like to, to learn more about this, again, I would, would recommend that, that you go back and listen to the sermons I, I preached some time ago on, uh, on the, the Lord's Supper and on the model prayer. Okay, but, but point three, third mark. They were dedicated to the breaking of bread, verse 42. Well, I've tipped my hand as, as to what I believe this breaking of bread is. It's 
I believe it's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Right? And I see this as distinct from the mention of breaking your bread in verse 46, mainly because of the definite article. There in verse 46, he just speaks about breaking bread, but here he's speaking about the breaking of bread. There's something unique that he's and specifically speaking about here by using the definite article. Again, it's not just breaking bread, but the breaking of bread. Now we recognize that the, the Lord's Supper um, was part of a, of a larger fellowship meal, and, and certainly that's, that's the case. You can see that at least by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, that, that the, the, the church was, was gathering for a, a corporate meal, and part of that meal was the, the, the celebration of, of communion, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And bread and wine were, were part of, of all Jewish meals, but it's only the Lord's Supper where they are, are said to, to represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's only the, the Lord's Supper, not, not every meal, that, that's a church ordinance. Again, I find question 102 of the Baptist Catechism helpful. Question, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to his appointment, his death is shown forth. And the worthy receivers are not after a a fleshly or, or corporal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. So along with with baptism, as we talked about last week, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church whereby we are are proclaiming the gospel. As we said many times, the the Lord's Supper does not preach a different gospel than the one I proclaim from this pulpit, but, but it preaches the same gospel better. This, the, the bread and the cup proclaim the gospel better than I ever could. It's, it's a means of grace that God has given to us. Again, as you can see, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper shortly. It's a symbol of the communion that we share together with Christ. Again, in the series on the Lord's Supper, it's a three-part sermon. I explained the Lord's Supper involves preparation and examination. That in order to partake, you must prepare yourself spiritually. You must examine yourself to make sure that you are are not walking in unrepentant sin. Especially that you are not partaking without due consideration to to Christ and the church. So it's preparation and examination. Then we we spoke about how the the Lord's Supper involves commemoration and participation. Remembering what what Christ has done for us on the cross, but but it's more than a, a mere memorial. We're also participating in the body and blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is a real spiritual blessing that takes place in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as Christ himself is spiritually present in the ordinance. And then third, I I spoke about how the the Lord's Supper involves also celebration and anticipation. It's a celebration of what Christ has done for us on the cross as we look back. And it's also anticipation. It's it's looking ahead to to Christ's return as he promises that he will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when he drinks it in you with you in your father's his father's kingdom. So it's a it's a looking back and a looking forwards. And so so all of these things, all of these things is more, but but those are are six key things that are involved in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And in all of this, again, we think about it in the context of fellowship. This is not something that, that you can, can do alone. 
the Lord's Supper is, is not something that you sit down just with, with you know, husband, wife, and children to, to celebrate at, at, at the table. This is something that we, we do only when the church is gathered together. And it's really, again, it's, it's, it's the highlight of our Lord's Day worship. As I said, this, the same reverence, I, I believe, should then continue as we, as we enjoy a love feast after, after we, we eat the bread and drink the cup together. The fourth and final mark that we're going to deal with this morning is that they were dedicated to the prayers. Verse 42 again. It's interesting here that, that Luke, once again, uses the definite article, the. He doesn't say they're dedicated to prayer, but specifically to the prayers. It, it seems like, like he's referring here to a specific set of prayers. And, and this, I, I think you probably know where I'm going with this. This obviously leads us, again, I tipped my hand earlier, but, but this, this leads us to the, the Lord's Prayer which is better described as the model prayer or the, the pattern prayer. So let's just, just quickly turn to, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, 9 to 13. Again, there's the, the, the preamble here where, where Jesus says how not to pray. And then he says in verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so Jesus taught this in, in, on the Sermon on the Mount in response to, in response to the disciples asking, how, how should we pray? Or he says how not to pray, and then he says, this is how you should pray. Now, there, there, I believe there's, there's, there are very likely other things here that, that, are, that Luke has in mind when he talks about about the prayers, but but it's certainly at the very least it, it would involve this prayer. Again, commonly thought of as the, the Lord's Prayer, the better the, the model prayer, the pattern prayer. This this is not a a just a set prayer to, to just repeat verbatim these words. Okay, again, I would, would refer you to the, the series that I did on this a, a few years ago. There's the address. Our Father in heaven, then there are six petitions in this prayer. And so these, the address and then the six petitions really are meant to be a, a guide or a, a framework that, that, that can guide and direct your prayers. And notice the first three are directed on, on the glory of God, the advance of his kingdom and, and obedience to his will. And then the, the, the last three are dedicated to our needs. And really they identify really all the, the main needs that, that we have um, as people in this life. We need we need provision, and that, that includes health and, and the, the various physical needs we have. Um, it, it involves the, the, um, the, the request for forgiveness, and it's, it's daily bread and daily forgiveness. Okay, and then finally, it's, a, it's also a, um, a, a request to not be led into temptation. These, so these are the, the six petitions. Now, now, really, as I've talked about it extensively in this sermon series, I, I really recommend that, that you at least start your day by praying through this, this prayer. And again, not just, just the words, but, but praying that what is taught here, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this. And earlier I referenced the, the Didache, which, in a, which again, it was an important example of the oral teaching of the early church. And there are many symbol, major similarities between the, the pattern prayer and the Didache. MacArthur points out that there's only three differences between the Didache's teaching on, on this prayer and on, on Matthew 6, 9 to 13, and, and each one is minor. Each of the, the, this is really, you can see that they, they had, 
by the time the Didache was written, again, very early in the church, they understood that, that at the very least, that, that part of praying was to, was to pray according to the, the, the pattern prayer. And they, they prayed it actually three times daily. But again, I don't believe it would have been repeated verbatim. It's, it's not just pray this, it's pray like this. So again, that's, that's the, 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 the fourth mark is a dedication to prayer. And so, so the, the question that, that comes is, is, are we as a church dedicated to prayer? Are you dedicated to prayer? I explained in my sermon series, and I, I can speak from a personal testimony as well, that there's probably no aspect of our, of our Christian walk that, that, that could bring us greater joy than intimate times of prayer with God, but, but also perhaps no greater thing that makes us feel more guilty than prayer. Our lack of prayer. When we did a survey in conjunction with that, it's um, virtually everybody in the church identified need for growth in their prayer life. Virtually everybody in the church. Again, none of us have arrived. But that being said, I think overall, I think we can be identified as a praying church. Now, I think about, about the, the fact of, of, you know, I know for a fact that, that people are praying. Now, I, I do think that I would love to see us praying more. I'd love to see more people coming out on, on Tuesday mornings and praying as we walk around the hospital for praying for an end to abortion. I'd love to see more people praying in our, our care groups. I'd love to see more people um, coming and, and praying with, with Daryl and I on, on Thursdays um, during the, the prayer time. I'd love to see more men coming to our, our, our men's prayer breakfast. But, but I believe that the prayer is happening. It's happening corporately and it's, it's happening individually in our homes. And we can, we can pray for prayer. We, we need to pray for prayer that the Holy Spirit would help us to say, you pray this? Oh God, help me to be dedicated to prayer. Do you think God's going to say, no, I'm not going to do that for you. That's God's will for you. Pray. If you want to pray, pray for prayer. And God will do that work. You know, as we, as we begin to draw to a close here, I was reminded of, of, of one day when Spurgeon was, was giving a, 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 a tour of a group of young pastors. Uh, he was giving them a tour of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And as part of the tour, he, he asked them if they wanted to see the boiler room. Now, the boiler room in that period after the Industrial Revolution, boiler rooms were, were where the, the boilers were, were the big furnaces that, that created steam that, that ran the machinery. Right? And they, 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 they were also used to, to heat buildings, is the, the boiler room. And this was a summer day, so he asked the man if they wanted to see the boiler room. He said, no, that's okay, thanks, we need to see the boiler room. And he, but he insisted. So, so we took these men down to the basement of the church and, and, and opened, opened a door to, to find a group of around 100 men and women praying. He said, this is the boiler room. This is, this is where the ministry happens. The, 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 you know, people wondered about how Spurgeon could do what he did. It's, 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 not, because, I mean, it's not just because Spurgeon was, was naturally gifted. It's because people prayed. Because people prayed. That's the boiler room. What, what, is, what does the boiler room look like in this church? It's you. You are the boiler room. I would love to see more people praying in, in the, the lead up to a service on, on Sunday morning. 
Spurgeon said that was the secret of his ministry. He, he always replied, my people, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for, for this church. Pray for each other. Pray that, that God would not just give you personally the heart for prayer, that you would not just personally be dedicated to prayer, but that we corporately would be dedicated to prayer through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So again, as we close here, our, our, the question is, is, are you, am I, de- dedicated to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers? I've already given you my assessment. I believe that we are. I believe that we are, but this is not just to, to give, give, give us just a pat on the back. I think you should be encouraged that we are. And I'll tell you why we are. Brothers and sisters, I believe that this church is dedicated to these things because you are alive. This is a living church because you are alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you are real Christians through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is causing you to, to recognize the importance of these things and to grow in these things. And so you can praise God for what he's doing in our midst. Because it doesn't originate with you and me. It originates with God. So let's praise God together. Again, we haven't arrived. Let's continue to pray for these things, for not just for for prayer, but for all of these things. Ask the Holy Spirit to to grow in our dedication to the word and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And pray even as, as we're about to receive the Lord's Supper together, pray that the Lord will, will work in all of our hearts, that, that this will be truly a means of grace to cause us to celebrate the fellowship that we have together in Christ and his sufferings and his resurrection and, and one day in his return. Let's pray together. Triune God, we praise you for your work in our midst. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for electing us before the foundation of the earth. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son to die for our sins, and we praise you, Lord Jesus, God incarnate, for the fact that you fully obeyed all of God's righteous commands and that you died as a sinner in our place, though you yourself had no sin. We praise you that it was impossible for death to hold you, but that you were raised on the third day, as a vindication, as your vindication and for our justification. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for for applying these things to our hearts, for regenerating us, for, for causing us to be born again, for granting us repentance and faith, and for continuing to work in us to conform us to the image of Christ, to guide us into truth and to help us by the grace of God, and for the glory of God to walk in that truth. Help us, we pray, to continue and to thrive in these things that you might be exalted, that you might be glorified in our midst. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.